Welcome to episode 255 of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and I'm happy to have you back here again with us this week. This is a time when all of us are thinking a lot about healing and well-being. We have a lot of questions about wellness, and today's guest is uniquely qualified to talk about that. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is medical director of McLean Hospital Southeast Adult Psychiatric Programs. He's a board-certified psychiatrist with a master's in divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, and in 2015, he walked onto a TEDx stage and proposed a revolutionary idea to an audience of doctors. He challenged them to join him in creating a new kind of medicine built on hope and possibility rather than focusing on sickness and disease. His new book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing, provides a fascinating look into healing and how changing our beliefs about ourselves can change our outcomes. Let's hear what he has to say. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today on Live Happy Now. I'm glad to be here. Well, we really wanted to talk to you because you have written a fascinating book, and it looks at how people with illnesses that were allegedly incurable were somehow spontaneously healed. And I found this book so fascinating, it's really difficult to put it down. And I wanted to know how you got started on this research to begin with. In 2002, an oncology nurse at Mass General in Boston came to me and said that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she wanted my help talking to her son about this. And so then she called me from a healing center saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries and she thought I should look into it. At that time, I was a new medical director, new faculty person at Harvard. I had just graduated from residency not that long ago, the year before. And I said, no, I didn't think anything likely was going on there and uh, refused. But Nikki was persistent. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying that they had medical evidence for their recoveries and did I want to hear their stories. I continued to say no for a while, but (laughs) letters were coming in. And as I began to look at some of the stuff that's being sent to me over time, in spite of my resistance and my skepticism, I began to become confused, frankly, because it looked like something in at least a few of these stories was going on. And so the long and short of it is I did begin researching these stories. And that's been 17 years now. So things have gone a long way since then. And how hard, it sounds like it really was difficult to reconcile what you were seeing with your medical education. That's very true. It was confusing to see these stories coming in and having lab tests and biopsy results come in with cures from cancer that I knew very well from my medical training weren't possible. And so what I did was I established three criteria. I said that I wouldn't even look at the person's story or listen to their story unless it really met these criteria. So the first criteria was the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. Number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And then number three, there needed to not be any complicating factors such as an experimental medication or anything else that could potentially explain how they got better. So that helped me begin separating things out because certainly a lot of the stories I was receiving and the data that was pouring in, it was hard to know what really was going on because you know a person can think that they got better, but if they were also getting 
some kinds of chemotherapy and had certain kinds of diagnoses, it wasn't clear what was happening. And so I tried to just make the criteria really clear for the sake of efficiency and so I could figure out what's going on. And how many cases would you say that you've studied? So at this point, after 17 years, I've gone deep into over 100 cases. It takes a long time to go into each case to separate out which are the cases that are genuinely incurable and then to see if there is really good medical evidence to make sure there's not other complicating factors. Once you get through that level, that removes a lot of the cases. And then from there to go deep into their lives and try to understand what are the factors that are associated with that recovery, that takes a lot of work. And so these cases are much more common than the research literature says. I've yet to give a talk where I'm not approached by someone afterwards, at least one person who says, either you need to talk to this patient, or you need to talk to my aunt, or you need to talk to my cousin. And most of the cases that have come to me, I have not had time to go into. It's just because, you know, I have a job and responsibilities. So, yeah, how do you fit this research in with the fact that you do have a job? It's not a small job. How do you do all this? Well, this has been a very personal passion for me that has grown over the years. I think I've always been driven by questions and these stories raised a lot of questions for me. And so it became something that I have spent a lot of early mornings on, a lot of late nights and weekends over time. And it's changed the way I think about a lot of things, both as a human being and as a physician. Well, what were some of the commonalities that you found in the cases that you've been researching? So in here, I talk about the four pillars of healing and well-being. And I try to tell stories that illustrate really well how these factors played a role in people's lives. And I tried to choose stories from my research that illustrated really well how this worked for people. So the first pillar is nutrition. And nutrition is a big part of most people's stories, actually. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like everyone became vegetarian or everyone followed the Atkins diet or something like that. It's really a unique journey for each person about what helped them feel better and feel their best. And we all come from different parts of the world with our ancestries and that sort of thing. And so I think different diets work better for different people. Some people went completely vegetarian. Other people chose a more ketosis diet. But what's true is that in Nearly all of these diets, the commonalities were very real, whether it's one type of nutritional plan or another, almost everyone eliminated processed foods. They eliminated the vast majority of sugar foods from their diet and also enriched flours. So they really began eating much more plant-based diet by and large. A number of people did eat meat, but they tended to eat meat that one person talked about eating animals that had been happy when they were alive, not with mm-hmm. bodies flooded with stress hormones, grass-fed so that you get the healthier fats and not pumped full of chemicals. And so even though the diets looked different on the surface, underneath there is a lot of similarity. So that's nutrition. The second pillar is that you need to heal your immune system. 
So one of the really exciting things that's just starting to happen in medicine is that we're starting to realize that we've missed the real story about illness for decades. As doctors, we are trained in body parts. If you're a cardiologist, you study the heart. If you're a psychiatrist, you study the brain. If you're a gastroenterologist, you study the GI system, the gastrointestinal system, et cetera. But what we now are learning and what these people with such remarkable recoveries have shown me with such clarity is that illness doesn't exist in these body parts as much as in the chronic inflammation that's created by our diets and our lifestyles. And so if you want to heal your immune system, then you need to lower the chronic inflammation in your body. That's really interesting because especially right now with people being concerned about the coronavirus and some other things where they talk about, I need to jack up my immune system. I need to boost it up. And yes. no one's saying I need to reduce inflammation. <laughs> yes. But so chronic inflammation is an immune system gone awry and is attacking your body. For example, if you're causing little micro cuts in your endovascular system because of the kinds of food and sugar that you're ingesting constantly into your body, then your immune system goes into repair mode, constantly trying to repair all these little microvascular cuts and injuries. And not only are you expending a lot of energy for your immune system to do that, you also are setting up this scarring cycle in your endothelium that is over time going to create hardening of the arteries. So it's not really a cholesterol problem. The deeper level is it's an inflammation problem. And the cholesterol is just a symptom of the deeper chronic inflammation. And so, you know, we have this amazing immune system with all these brilliant cells and cell subtypes that want to do their job crisply and efficiently, but you have to give them the proper conditions so that they can do that. And so, so I tell people to address the nutrition, to avoid toxins, to not over-medicate, to flush your lymphatic system regularly with lots of water, to spend time with people you love who make you laugh because we know that laughter and positive, authentic emotions are great for your immune system and to make sure you get plenty of rest. A lot of those things are things our moms told us growing up. She just yes. kind of presented it differently and didn't realize that she was giving us medical advice. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's very true because your mom probably knew some common sense things that were more about seeing the forest for the trees in terms of what creates vital immune systems than what we were thinking about for a long time when we were just looking at the individual body parts. So it's not a diabetes problem. It's not a high blood pressure problem. It's not a cancer problem. It's not a heart problem or an autoimmune problem. More fundamentally, it's a chronic inflammation problem. That's so interesting. How do we get the medical community to think that way? And how do we as individuals kind of wrap our head around that and start approaching our health differently? The research is accumulating so rapidly on this now that this is going to transform medicine. The problem is it just takes so many years and decades for what is going on in the research lab to get all the way down into clinical medicine. And that's why we need to help people find out about this information so that they can begin taking charge of their health and do these things because these are simple lifestyle changes that are very empowering when you begin integrating them into your life. And it's just not there yet in our clinics and hospitals where doctors are saying, 
we've got to help you decrease your inflammation. That's what needs to happen, but it's just not there yet. It will be there. And as we move toward that, are you seeing more doctors starting to embrace that or is it kind of too soon? Most patients tell me that no doctor has ever told them that they need to decrease the amount of chronic inflammation in their bodies. And that's the deeper cause of their illnesses. We're just in the early stages of that beginning to change, and that is going to change, but it just has not taken hold yet because there's so many factors in medicine that keep change from occurring, unfortunately. And there's so much technology. We talk a lot about AI and how that's changing medicine. There's all these yeah. advancements. But what about the alternative things like energy healing or homeopathic medicine? Do they have a place in our healing or is it just some people think they're voodoo? What's your medical take on those? So that's a great question. And I don't have the best answer for that. I think we need a lot more research on those areas. I'm not an expert on alternative medicine. There are so many different kinds of alternative medicine, whether it is supplements or acupuncture or homeopathy, Reiki. And there's some research on these things. We need more. It's absolutely true that many people who I have studied have said that different modalities were helpful, but it's also true that many of the people I've studied didn't try any of those modalities. So the way I tried to balance that in Cured was to just honestly tell stories about people who did use these modalities and what they said, and then also to tell stories of people who didn't and try to look for the deeper commonalities beyond the alternative therapies to see what was going on for them. So is it a case of what works for one person may not be ideal for the next? Yes, it's absolutely true that this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. In my personal experience, you know, I'm the chief of behavioral medicine at a medical hospital and a medical director at a psychiatric hospital. And I can tell you that a person can be prescribed chemotherapy and they can find that the most liberating path for them, and they're so grateful for it, the next person in a very similar situation will be so worried about putting something that toxic in their body, and they may take that medication, but they will feel very uncomfortable with it. I think what's important is a person needs to do some careful, thoughtful, and rational research for themselves, and whatever path they choose, they need to do it for themselves and not to please a husband or a doctor or to do it for someone else. They need to do what feels right for them in their situation. And that takes more work, but it's associated with a much more powerful outcome. As Jerry White, one of the stories in the book that I tell, he was an engineer with lots of patents and he was an inventor. And he said, if you're going to leave someone in charge of your health, you might not be happy with the results. And so he really felt it's important to tell people that they need to be personally involved with making decisions about what works for them and what doesn't. Yeah, and it also speaks to how we think and what we believe and how that affects our healing process. You touched on it with the chemotherapy example, but how does the way we think and the things that we believe influence the way that we heal? Yeah, that's a great question because we all grow up with these beliefs that we take in from our parents from kids on the playground, from teachers, from colleagues at work. We take in a lot of beliefs and we have a lot of experiences and we interpret them sometimes in very different ways 
from each other. And a lot of these beliefs, some of them are true, some of them are false, some of them are empowering, some of them are disempowering. And for many of us, these beliefs are unexamined. Some of them are conscious beliefs, some are subconscious beliefs, and they have a massive influence on whether a treatment is going to be helpful or whether we think it's going to be helpful. And I have come to believe that these deep, unexamined assumptions and beliefs play a huge role in regards to what works for us and what doesn't work and our clues to what needs attention. And how do we learn to listen to that? Because as you just alluded to a couple of minutes ago, we might tend to listen to the doctor even if that's not deep inside what we feel, or we might be talked into something by a spouse or a parent. So how do we learn to tune into what it is we really believe about our healing? Yeah. So I cannot tell you how many people have said to me that it took an illness for them to wake up and begin not taking care of everyone else or not responding to the perceived expectations of others and instead focusing on what created an authentic life for them, a life that created life for them and well-being. For some people, to make such a big change in their life felt selfish initially, and it's not. But to begin doing what's right for you and to do the work so that you feel what's right for you at a deep level, that takes a degree of self-knowledge that is so important for all of us, but it's so easy to go through life just pleasing others or responding to the expectations of others and never really come to grips with what you know is right for you. And those pathways are different for different people. And as you said, a lot of times it's the illness that's a trigger. So how do we start doing that before we have an illness? Because when we're healthy, we're not thinking, oh, gosh, I need to evaluate how I feel about my healing process. Yeah, I think that it's important to start looking for messages in our lives that something is out of balance and to begin asking ourselves if we're living a life that is authentic and life-giving for us. If any of us are run down at the end of the day, depleted and questioning our value, then you have to begin looking at your work and your relationships and begin asking, what is it that's running me down? What is it that's depleting me? And what are the factors that are, on the other hand, creating well-being and vitality? I mean, what are the kinds of things that put a light in your eyes? What are the things that cause you to come alive? That's a clue to an authentic life for each one of us, I believe. My friend, Gabor Mate, he's a physician in Canada, and he says, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. And I believe our hospitals and our clinics are full of bodies that are screaming and bodies keep the score. And we need to listen to the messages our bodies are giving us and learn to respond to that. And you also talk about getting rid of the negative thoughts about ourselves. Yes. And a lot of times when we think about our physical health, we don't calculate that into it. So can you talk about why that is so important? Yes. So all of us run around with two different kinds of physiologies running in our body. We are either in fight, flight, or freeze, which is a physiology where our sympathetic nervous system is operative. And it's great if there's a tiger nearby you in the woods, you want to run or fight or freeze. 
that makes sense. But that situation is hopefully not often, and it's over quickly. And then your body <laughs> needs to get into a parasympathetic healing mode, which is a very different set of hormones and a very different biochemical environment in your body. Fight or flight is about stress hormones. It's the secretion of cortisol and norepinephrine and adrenaline, and that soaks your immune cells and all the cells in your body in a very particular physiology. When you are in a parasympathetic mode where your body is in healing mode, you will be flooding your cells, bathing your cells in oxytocin, which is the connection molecule. You'll be secreting dopamine, which is the pleasure pathway. You'll be secreting serotonin, which is the antidepressant, anti-anxiety molecule. And those hormones, those neurochemicals are associated with creating the physiology that allows your cells to heal. And it's a dramatically different physiology. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I think we just seem to shortchange the value of, of those positive emotions way too often and yes. what they can do for us. Because we think of like, yes, this makes me feel good, but we're not really thinking of how it's influencing our health. That's right. And the research base is just so clear about this. And it doesn't have to be just with our loved ones. When we talk to the postman for 20 seconds or when we talk to the clerk at the bank for two minutes, if we just do what we can to make a genuine connection and smile and be authentic and warm and connecting, that lowers the stress hormones in our body and sets our physiology free to heal in a way that is great for our body. We know on the basis of research that if you are chronically secreting stress hormones in your body, that your immune cells become numb and sluggish and non-responsive. And so you can't heal or be vitally healthy in that kind of biochemical environment. And how does that tie into the lives that we're living online? Because we've gotten into this electronic world, and I don't know if it's been going on long enough for you to have research on that, but what does it do to us when we're spending so much time online and we're responding that way? Barbara Fredrickson at UNC Chapel Hill has done some fascinating research on this, and she said that talking to your mother on the phone is good for you physiologically, but it's even better for you physiologically when you talk to the postman in person. And so even though you have a much deeper connection with your loved one or with your mother on the phone, and that's good for you physiologically, it's still better in person. We just thrive on contact. And our vagus nerve, which is the parasympathetic superhighway in our bodies, and it's what causes our lips to curve into a smile. It's what causes our eyes to twinkle and squint as we make contact with a person and make eye contact. That's the vagus nerve. And that personal contact does things physiologically that online doesn't seem to quite do. Your book looks at how people change their health by changing their lives. But what can people do right now who are listening to start living healthier and more empowered lives so they don't ever have to be cured from an incurable illness? So that's a question about creating well-being in your life. And I think nutrition is often where people start 
it's kind of the most tangible, easiest thing to get your head around. But what I have seen over and over again is that what people with these remarkable recoveries want to talk about is the ways in which they change their relationship with themselves and their relationship with the world, where they no longer question their value. They understand that they are good enough as they are, and they don't have to have these quiet doubts about that, that they realize they bring something good into the world and they have learned to feel okay about taking up space in the world. They've learned to feel okay about healing traumas from the past that had influenced their perception and their interpretation of different situations that they went through in their lives and they healed their identities and their beliefs about themselves at a deep level. And I think that work is so deeply gratifying. Every person who I've studied said that in retrospect, they were so grateful for the illness because of the way in which it helped them heal their beliefs about themselves. That is remarkable. You've done a terrific job of sharing these experiences and these stories with us and really changing the way that we look at our health and our well-being and what we can do with our own health. So I appreciate you writing this book. And when we come back, we're going to tell the listeners where they can download a free chapter of it. And they can also learn more about you, see one of your talks, found some great stuff online with you and go to your website and learn more about you. Well, thank you so much for asking such important questions. That was Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, author of Cured, the life-changing science of spontaneous healing. If you'd like to learn more about his work or download a free chapter from his book, visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. We hope you're already a subscriber to Live Happy Now, but if you're not, you can find us on the Pandora Podcast Network, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Just look for us on your favorite platform and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.